0: When you were a child, what did you want to be? A lot of people wanted to be a police officer, a soldier, maybe, for some of you, a sniper, a princess, a queen, a prince, a king. Perhaps you wanted to be a famous actor, a doctor, a lawyer, a professional athlete, What was your dream when you were a child? Second question, what happened to that dream? Did you achieve that dream? And if you didn't achieve that dream, do you still have that dream? Is that dream still something that you're aspiring to be? Is this your retirement dream? You're still going to make it eventually. Well, I'll tell you my dream. My dream was to be a professional athlete, specifically a professional basketball player. And that dream looked like it was possible when I was 11 years old and the tallest person in my class. And as I progressed in age, everyone else kept getting taller and I stopped growing. And so, in short, what happened to my dream? Life happened. And that which seemed in reach became simply out of reach. But I've noticed that oftentimes we as adults can be uh, realists, yes, but maybe a little jaded. And our dreams get squashed. But some of those dreams are still reality. Some of those dreams that we have, those aspirations, can still be achieved. And hopefully in tonight's passage we will see that some of your dreams as children will yet become true. And those aspirations will come to fruition. So please open your Bibles to 1 John chapter 4. We're going to be looking at 17 through 21, but we're going to go back up back to uh, verse 13 for context. So 1 John chapter 4, 13 through 21. By this, we know that we abide in Him and He in us, because He has given us His Spirit. And we have seen and testified. That the Father has sent his Son to be Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him, and he in God. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love, and whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. By this is love perfected with us, that we have confidence for the day of judgment. Because as he is, so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God, and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he does not love his brother whom he has not seen for he does not love his brother whom he has seen, cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. So let's look back to verse 17. By this is love perfected with us, so that we have confidence for the day of judgment, because as he is, so also are we in this world. So what does it mean by this Love is perfected. Here, perfected has the meaning of love is complete. Love comes to its fruition. Love comes to the point of its arrival. You have arrived at your destination. You can think about the children when you've gone on a road trip, or maybe you have been that child who keeps bugging the parents saying, are we there yet? Are we there yet? Well, this is when you finally get there and say, yes, we have finally arrived. Where is love taking you? Well, the arrival point of love is right there in the next phrase. Love arrives at this location so that we have confidence for the day of judgment. This is where the love of God should bring us. We know we are loved. We know we have peace with God. And we know one day we will all stand before that God that we now have peace with. And the wonderful thing about that is if we have peace with God, That if we and God are on the right terms, then we know that when we stand before him on that day, he will declare us innocent. Just imagine if you were going to be sentenced by the judge and the judge happened to be your best friend. Wouldn't that be great? You're thinking you're begging for leniency and you're looking at the person that you go golfing or in my case play pickleball with or maybe your case go running with. Wouldn't that be a wonderful thing? You know that this person is the person that's going to judge you. Is the same person that loves you and cares for you and wants to do everything in their power to help you. Well, that's God. But God can not only just help us by giving us a lighter sentence or corrupting justice, which we would not want anyways. But God has the power to declare us guilty and to make us innocent so that he can then declare us as innocent. This, of course, is the exact opposite experience for the unbeliever. When they get judged, they don't see their best friend. They don't see their spouse. They don't see their mother and father they have a great relationship with. Rather, they see their worst enemy. The unbeliever is not at peace with God, but rather he is at war with the Lord. Romans 1.28 gives this description. It says, talking about the wicked, And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. And they are filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, and maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Pretty bad. This is the description of the wicked. And then it goes on to say this, though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but they give approval for them who practice them. So these are people who are at war with God, at enmity with God that live evil lives that they're full of all forms of evil, and it says here specifically that they know that those who practice these things that they practice and love Deserve to die. But they're so depraved that they don't only do them, but they approve of them. And it's this condition that Christ came to reverse. He no longer wants us terrified of him, rightfully recognizing that we deserve his condemnation and deserve to die. He doesn't want us to be like Adam when he sinned and God said, Where are you? God had to go searching for Adam because he went. Running away. Adam was cowering in fear, hiding in the fig leaves, trying to run away from the Lord. But God came to reverse that. He came to restore the relationship with God and man so that it can be back to the way it used to be, where God would walk in the garden and he was a friend. And man would come running to God instead of running away from the Lord. That we don't have to fear God. We can have confidence, as our passage says. In the day of judgment, in the day that we meet the Lord face to face, we can run to God like Adam did before he sinned instead of running away from God as Adam did after he had fallen. Hebrews 2 records this reality of Christ's mission. It says this, Since therefore the children of God share in flesh and blood with Christ, Christ himself partook of the same things that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death that is the devil, and to deliver all those who fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. So what did Christ come to do? He came to deliver you from the fear of death. Now, we might all recognize that we're all still going to die, right? And so maybe we have some fear of just what will the experience be or going into the unknown. There's some experiences of death that we still have fear of, and Christ did not necessarily come to free us from that, but what it's referring to here is the fear of death, and what comes beyond death is accounted man wants to die, who knows the rest of that passage, but after this, the judgment. The real reason that we fear death isn't because we fear pain, the real reason we fear death is because we know that we will meet the Lord when we die on that day. And that's what Christ came to do. He came to free you of the fear of his meeting with you. That's what our pastor says, verse 17. By this is love perfected. This is where love is trying to bring you so that you may have confidence for the day of judgment. Why? Well, the next part of our pastor tells us, it says, Because as he is, so also are we in this world. Now, don't just fly by that real quick. That's a little bit kind of choppy and hard, and difficult, what exactly does that mean? I mean, I think you would expect to say something like, because we're forgiven by his blood, right? Wouldn't that be a much easier thing to say? We have confidence in that day because he promised to save us and we have believed, or that his blood has cleansed us from all of our sin, but it doesn't say that. It says, because as he is, so also are we in this world. Now notice it doesn't say as he was, but as he is, so also are we in this world. And it's a difficult phrase, and it's challenging uh, for a host of reasons. It's just kind of difficult to understand what that means. So there are two possible interpretations of that last little clause, because as he is, so also are we in this world. The first interpretation is as he is refers to as Christ has lived righteously. And the second phrase, so also are we, refers to us living righteously. So as he was righteous or as he is righteous, so also are we righteous in this world. And so the NLT captures the idea of this meaning and it translates the passage this way. It says, "And as we live in as we live in God, our love grows more perfect. So we will not be afraid on the day of judgment, but we can face him with confidence." Because we live like Jesus here in this world. See how they translate it? The reason that we can have confidence is because we live like Jesus here in this world. That's NLT's rendering of the passage. The CEV, the Contemporary English Version, which is even more paraphrastic, says this. If we truly love others and live as Christ did in this world, we won't be worried about the Day of Judgment. See what they're doing? They're saying that what it's referring to is just because as he is, so also we are in the world. It's saying because he is righteous, we also are righteous. And just as he was approved, so we also will be approved. And they would point to 1 John 2.29, which says, If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. So it's not a totally false idea that Christ is righteous and he makes you a child of God. And as a result, you resemble him and you too become a righteous individual. The second translation or the second interpretation of the passage, which I prefer, is as he is, refers to who Christ is and his status. As he is, you you fill in the blank. As Christ is, what? What comes in the end of that sentence? As he is about beloved, as he is approved. As he is accepted, as he is looked upon with favor, so we are beloved, so we are accepted, so we are looked by God with favor. And a passage that could be used to support this idea is 1 John 3.3, And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. So Christ is pure, and if you hope in Christ, you become like him And you yourself become purified by hoping in the pure one. So as he is pure, we are pure. As he is righteous, we are righteous. As he is the son of God, guess what? You are a son of God. As he is favored in God's sight, so you are favored in God's sight. As he is an heir, you are an heir. As he is beloved, you are beloved. And all of these various things. I was recently, maybe six months ago, preaching a funeral, and I told this story that Sometimes I have a a sanctified imagination. And sometimes I wonder, when Christ ascended 40 days after his resurrection, and they saw him, and the angel said, As he goes, so he will come back. I wonder what happened as he kept going through the clouds and entered into the kingdom. And I had some sanctified imagination of imagining that there were guards in heaven guarding the gates of heaven. And as they peered out on their watch they saw the Son of God entering near the gates. And I imagined that they would cry out, open the gates for the Son of God is here. And in the funeral, I remarked that in a similar way, when a saint of the Lord dies and we are being taken up by the angels, think about the parable of Lazarus and the rich man, he was taken up to the angels into glory, that when they see you, what would they say? Behold, open up, the Son of God is here. Because the reality is, just as Jesus is a Son of God, so he has given us the right to be sons of God for all who have received him. And just as heaven would never close its gates to the Son of God, heaven will never close its gates to us. As he is, so are we. And this idea... That what is true of Christ becomes true of us is taught throughout the Bible. And in fact, most of the time when you see in the Bible, in him, it's referring to this union with Christ language. To remind you of some of these passages, do you remember when Paul was persecuting the people of God and he met Jesus on the road to Damascus? And do you remember what Jesus said to him? Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Now, does that mean that Saul was taking slingshots and trying to slingshot Jesus out of heaven? Of course not. He was persecuting him by persecuting the people of God. We see the same idea found in Matthew chapter 25. It says, Jesus says that you fed me, you clothed me, you visited me, you treated me while I was sick. And they all say, when did we do these things? And Jesus said, when you did it to the least of these, my brothers, you have done them to me, this is that unification language. The idea is what's true of Christ becomes true of his people who are his body. Ephesians 1.3 says this, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. So where is the domain, the location, where does the blessing of God reside? It resides in Christ. God has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. It's based on our union with Christ that we receive all of these blessings. And then the rest of Ephesians lay out these blessings. We're chosen for the foundation of the world in him to be holy and blameless. We are predestined for adoption through redemption through his blood by being united to God through Christ. We receive an inheritance, a promise of the glorious new earth. Or, some prefer the translation, we become God's inheritance in Christ. And we receive his Holy Spirit as the guarantee of our future redemption. All of these things happen in Christ. So as members of Christ, our destiny becomes the destiny of Christ. And this is spelled out in Romans chapter 8. Romans 8 verse 16 says, The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs and then heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him, in order that we may be glorified with him. So when we become children of God, we become heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. And so just as Christ will reign, so we will reign. And that's why Ephesians chapter two, when it talks about we've been saved, not only have we been been saved and raised from the dead, but it goes on to say we have been seated with Christ in the heavenly places. And so the, the image here, is that Christ is at the right hand of the Father, reigning with him on his throne. But interesting enough, behind Christ, if you want to think about it, you you have God here, you have Christ, and behind Christ you have people reigning with him. As a fellow heir, people sitting on his left and his right hand. And that's us. We are those people who reign with Christ. And so because as he is, as he is loved, as he is beloved, as he is... Reigning with Christ. All of these things that are true of Christ are also true of us. This is why we can have confidence. We can have confidence in the day of judgment because God will never reject His Son. And if you are part of His Son, then He will never reject you. Now let's look at one last little phrase here on verse 17. Why is that last little phrase, we in this world, added? Look at that phrase. Because as He is, so also are we in this world. Why add that little attachment in this world? Well, I think the reason is, is that it's currently difficult for us to see and embrace our future reality with Christ. To actually truly embrace that we truly are headed to glory and that we are truly going to one day reign with him in glory. And I think if you think about Christ himself, when he was in this world, it was also difficult to imagine that this individual would one day become the Lord of glory who every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess that Jesus is Lord. So let me bring you to a few scenes where you can kind of see how this could be challenging to believe and recognize that at the time. Think back to the episode of Jesus 12 years old. We have some 12 years in this room. 12 years old getting lost at the temple and them confronting him in Luke chapter 12 verse 49 and they say to him you know where have you been? And he replies, why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? Now, when Jesus was saying that at 12 years old, hanging out in a temple, it seemed kind of strange and odd that it would be this one who would rule the nations. It didn't seem likely. A 12-year-old? Yes, but in fact, it is true. Let me bring you to another scene where it's difficult to see the future destiny of Jesus based on what's going on at the time. And that scene is the trial of Jesus in Mark 14, where you have Jesus being led against his will in chains and shackles, being led to the chief priests and the elders. And in this scene, you have all the people bearing false witness against Jesus, saying that he said he destroyed the temple and all of these various things. And they finally asked him, because Jesus is being silent and not responding to him, they finally asked him, are you the Christ, the son of the blessed one? In Mark 14, 62, Jesus says this, I am, and you will see the Son of Man seated, seated at his right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. Upon this, the chief priest tears his robe, and then they beat Christ, and they lead him on to execution. Now, in this moment, where Jesus is shackled, beaten, and has an entire judicial system, appointed by God, by the way, this is the Jews, not some other people, all condemning Jesus Does it seem like it's going to be this one who's going to rule the nations? This one is headed to glory. This one will be heir of all things. It certainly does not seem that way to us. It didn't seem that way when Jesus was betrayed by Judas. It doesn't seem that way when Jesus is rejected by his entire hometown when they tried to kill him. It doesn't seem that way when Jesus is not even believed in by his brothers and sisters. In fact, Jesus was from a town Where, if you remember, Nathaniel said, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Can anything even good come out of this place? This is how, where Jesus came from, and this is Jesus' background. And I hope you, the reason I'm spelling this out is, the point is this. As we saw Jesus in this world, there's nothing about Jesus that would make you think it's this one who will rule the nations. It's this one who will one day be king of kings and Lord of Lords. And here's the application. So, too, if you look at yourself, it doesn't seem like you are going to be ruling the nations either because you're just a normal person, right? It doesn't seem like you are one day going to be glorified either because you're just human. And yet, you too will one day be more than you see right now. You too, even though you look like it's a day of small things, are headed to glory if you are in Christ. We are weak, we are despised, but we too shall reign. Why? Not because we're great, but because he's great and because his promise is never failing. Revelation 5.10 says, He made him, them, that's the people of God, to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God, and they will reign on the earth. So just a little while longer, we must suffer here, but then we shall reign. And just as Jesus suffered, we must suffer. And just as Jesus came down in the form of a servant, we too are currently playing the form of a servant. And yet we too will one day be in the form of a king. Your dreams will come true. But Christ, of course, promised us the disciples is not above his teacher. If they despise the teacher, so they will despise you. If the teacher had to go through a state of humility, so you will have to go through a state of humility. Recall the words of Paul when he strengthened the disciples, and he said, through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. Just as Jesus had to go through the cross, so we must go through many tribulations on our way to glory. Just as he was, so are we, but we are doing this in this world. But there is one major difference between Christ in us. And that major difference is even though Christ came in the form of a man and became fully man, the major difference between us and Christ is that he was without sin, and we are full of sin. And this makes it even more difficult for us to believe that we're heading to glory. Why? Because we know God's law that the soul that sins shall die, or the wages of sin is death. And so it becomes even more difficult for us to have this confidence that we really will be accepted by God when we can clearly see in ourselves that we are, in fact, sinners. And this is where we have to stand on the promises of God. And we simply have to believe that despite what our heart sometimes condemns us, and despite what we can see objectively, which is namely our sin, that God will fulfill his promise, and he will usher us up into the kingdom. And we have this promise in 1 John 3.20, it says... For whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart, for he knows everything. So even when we are condemned, even when we are burdened by the guilt of sin, we can still know that we are headed to glory. There's that great hymn called Standing on the Promises of God. Anybody know that hymn? It's a beautiful hymn. I should have picked this hymn to sing tonight. Somebody can find a hymn that we can sing it. But this wonderful hymn in line two says this standing on the promises that cannot fail when the howling storm of doubt and fear assail by the living word of God I shall prevail standing on the promises of God. We have to stand on God's promises believing that just as he is so are we even though we are in this world full of weakness, full of disappointment, full of sadness, full of sickness, disease and sadly full of sometimes sin. Now Let's move on to verse 18. One of the things that caused us to lack confidence, as I pointed out, was our sin, which can cause us to have fear. And that's exactly what comes up in the very next verse. Look at verse 18. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. Now, we have to be very careful here because... I think often we, be, we can become one-text Christians. We only know one text, right? There's only there's just one proof text, and that's what the Bible has to say about the whole topic. We have our one text, and there it is. And I think that this has happened to people, that when they think about fear, whether they know it or not, it seems like this is the text that everybody gravitates to subconsciously or consciously. Namely, that fear is a bad thing, and fear got to go, right? That, that's what it says. Perfect love, cast out fear. So it's kind of like this. I think in a lot of people's mind. The beginning of knowledge is the fear of the Lord. So you start with fear, but then eventually you get to 1 John 4 where you cast that fear out and fear is no longer in you. So you start with fear. You might have got saved because you were afraid to go to hell, but you've been perfected in love. You actually feel guilty because you ever were motivated by hell. And now you don't fear hell at all. Okay. Well, not so fast. I think we need to be very careful with this kind of exegesis. We need to do systematic theology, not proof-text theology. Proof-text theology works like this. You have verses that you like, and then you read all the other verses, in light of the verses you like, trampling all of them the entire process. That's not what we do. We need to harmonize all of what the Bible says. So before we just get our entire theology of fear from this one passage, we've got to remind ourselves what the Bible teaches about fear elsewhere. For example, Matthew ten twenty-eight, one of my favorite verses, it says, Do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul, but rather fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Now, what's really interesting about that passage is, what does fear mean there? Do not fear man, who can kill the body, but not the soul, but rather fear God, who can cast both soul and body in hell. What kind of fear is that? It's called the fear of punishment. You see that? The fear of the punishment, namely of him casting into hell. So we're not work simply saying that fear only means, in this context, reverence or respect, because clearly it means to fear of him who can cast you into hell, which is the worst punishment imaginable. Where is the it profit man to gain the whole world, and yet lose his own soul? Now, some might be thinking, and I don't have time to prove this, you can go back to Matthew 28 if you want, that that text is really just talking to unbelievers. It's not. It's talking to believers. In fact, the entire context is trying to motivate believers to not fear persecution, but continue to preach the gospel despite persecution because they, the unbelievers can't really do anything to you. All they can do is kill your body, but they cannot kill your soul. But rather, you should fear God because he's the one who can cast you soul and body into hell. So Christians are, in fact, supposed to be motivated at some level by fear of punishment. Matthew ten twenty-eight is very clear on that matter. And yet we have this passage that says, Perfect love casts out fear. So how do we reconcile the problem? Is fear a good thing? Should we fear God who can destroy both soul and body and hell? Or should we cast out the fear of God because perfect love casts out the fear of punishment? I think that the key to harmonizing these two polar opposite passages is realizing that 1 John 4 is talking about personal fear of God. It's talking about the kind of fear of God that causes you to lack confidence in the day of judgment. It means that when people say, Maranatha, Lord Jesus, come, or they say, Lord, I hope you come tonight, that person secretly in their heart saying, I hope not tonight. Why? Because I'm afraid of what's going to happen when he comes, because he might not come as a friend but as a foe. That is inappropriate fear. You should not have that kind of fear. Perfect love casts out that fear. Perfect love now views God not as an enemy or someone who's out to get you, but as a friend and someone who's out to bless you. That's the kind of fear that perfect love casts out because you know God is for me and God loves me and he's coming to redeem me. He's not coming to judge me. Perfect love casts out that kind of fear. Perfect love never casts out the conditional fear that if I deny him, he will deny me. That that fear is always. That fear is called believing his word. That's what he said. He says this in Matthew 10, 32. He says, everyone who acknowledges me before men I will acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. Hallelujah, that's the gospel. If we acknowledge him, he will acknowledge us. If we believe in him, he will accept us into heaven. But then it goes on to say, But whoever denies me before men, I will also deny before my Father who is in heaven. Notice, whoever denies me is the same as whoever acknowledges me. So as true as the gospel is, that if we acknowledge Christ, he will acknowledge us, as true as the warning of apostasy is, if we deny him, he'll deny us. It's just that simple. That kind of fear never ends. That will always be frightful. As long as you believe that passage, you cannot but fear that if you become that person, you will gain that destiny. And that's the kind of fear that is enduring and it lasts. And that's exactly the kind of fear Psalm 19:9 9 says. Some of you know that passage by heart. The fear of the Lord is clean and it endures forever. There's nothing, that is not being cast out. That remains. We will always respect the Lord. We'll always believe the Lord. We'll always recognize that he is holy and he will cast out sinners. And if we reject him, he will reject us. That kind of fear is never removed. But the beauty of the gospel, the truth of the truth, is we don't have to, even though we are sinners, we're forgiven saints as well, forgiven sinners, and so we don't have to fear punishment any longer because our heart is soothed. Perfect love casts out personal fear of that God Who is we believe is out to get us when really he's just out to rescue us. Now here's the question. Do you have perfect love? Is your love been completed? Do you have confidence in that day? If the Lord Jesus were to show up right now or if you were to die right now and show up to the Lord, would you have confidence on that day? Would you believe that he would receive you? Would you believe you'd hear these words, well done, thou good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of thy Lord. Or do you wonder... In your heart of hearts, if God would say, depart from me, you work of iniquity, I never knew you. Has your love been completed because you're resting and trusting in the gospel? And if the answer is no, consider the words of Isaiah 118, which has come now. Let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. If you're willing and obedient, you shall eat the good of the land. God invites all of us to have peace with him. Even though your sins are like scarlet, they can be transformed and become as white as snow or white as wool. Come, if you're willing and obedient, eat the good of the land. Come, receive his blessings. Well, what does it mean to be willing and obedient? It means if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For as the scripture says, everyone who believes in him shall not be put to shame. All we have to do is call out. And we can have this confidence. We can have true confidence that we will be saved. Not full-heartedness, not arrogance, not all of these lies and misconceptions, but we can have true confidence. And I, I fear this. I fear many of us, hopefully none of in this room, but I fear many unbelievers that they believe that they're going to be able to explain away their sin before the Lord. Instead of repenting, instead of trusting in him, they're going to blame shift and try to blame somebody else and say, you don't understand, it was my dad. You don't understand, it was my church. You don't understand this, that, and the other. Well, interesting enough, we already know what that conversation is going to look like. It's happened already. It happened in the very first book of the Bible, in the very first three chapters. We already had someone who tried to blame shit. It happened in Genesis chapter 3. It was the woman. It was the serpent. It was this. It was that. And interesting enough, what I find very fascinating about the scene is God does not argue with them. Did you notice that? God doesn't say, no, you don't understand this, that, and the other. No, he just condemns them and says, "Cursed are you. From dust you have been taken, to dust you shall return. That will be your destiny on that day as you argue with the Lord. He will say, depart from me, and you'll be taken away, and you'll be gagged. Don't be like that. Rather, make peace with God here on the earth. Don't rest in your excuses, but rather rest in his grace. Please join me in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, God, we thank you for your gospel. We thank you that we can have confidence in that day, Lord. We thank you that... Even though we were sinners, even though we were imperfect, that we were vile, that we have union with Christ so that we can gain in his destiny. We thank you that we can have these truths be true about us, even though we're in this world, even though it does not seem like it, even though we seem like just regular people living regular lives and even still sinners. We know that even in this world that we are like him. We are purified. We are beloved. We are favored. We are heirs. And we too, just as Christ was glorified, we too will be glorified in him. We pray these things in Jesus' name.